Okay, we will be in Psalms today, Psalm 139. And, you know, you've got New Year's, New Year's resolutions, which I, uh, you know, I don't do resolutions anymore because I don't keep them, and so I just, I got tired of discouraging myself. And so, uh, instead we just try to make goals and set them, which I guess is really the same thing, but anyway... Um, the reality that when a new year starts, it's sort of like a, a, a giant yearly Monday. My wife loves Mondays. It's like her favorite day of the week, which is, i tell you all you need to know about Jenny. She just loves the new beginning and a fresh page in her journal and all these things. And uh, New Year's for me, by the time I get here, I'm sort of worn out from uh, December is a bit of an exhausting month from like Thanksgiving through Christmas. There's just a lot going on. And, and then we have this sort of decrescendo in the week. Uh, from Christmas to now, and now we're in a new year. Like, it's officially 2022, and now what do we do? And so as a church, we've taken a break, obviously, from Hebrews, and we're going to pick that up again soon and finish Hebrews chapter 13, and then we are going to jump into a, uh, a series. We're going to be looking at the, the one another's in, in the New Testament and what it means to really do life as a body. But today we're going to be looking at just the last two verses of Psalm 139. So this psalm is famous, famous for a lot of things. You've seen it uh, cross-stitched into things. You have seen it uh, carved into wood. Uh, I mean, it starts off, oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit up and when I rise. It's, you know, the reality that David is saying that I cannot get away from the Lord. It doesn't matter where I go, you're going to be there. Where can I flee from your spirit? And then this beautiful reality that you're created, my inmost being, you knit me together. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made that we are created by God for a purpose that we have a, a reality that he makes for us and that he ordains our days for us. Verse 17 says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God, and the vast are the sum of them. The idea that God has thoughts and that we can know them. Have you ever sat and thought about that? That God thinks things and that he lets us know what those thoughts are. That's remarkable, right? And then, of course, in uh, verse 19 the reality that we live in a fallen world. And he says, if only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. And he says, do I not hate those who hate you, O God, and abhor those who rise up against you? The reality for the believer is that we actually live in a world that despises its creator. And we, we are around people who hate the Lord. Now, they won't say that they hate him, but just if you've ever had a conversation with a, like a rabid atheist, it's remarkable to me how angry someone gets at something they don't believe exists. It's remarkable. I do not get mad at a, somebody who talks about unicorns or leprechauns or whatever. I just don't because if they want to say the unicorns exist and I rode one and I went into a magical forest and we had lunch together, I'm like, okay, that's great. I mean, okay. But they literally will hold, hold God in the same belief that I would hold a unicorn or a leprechaun. It, it does not exist. The word means atheist, right? No God. And yet they will angrily hate a God they claim does not exist. It makes no sense. There's no coherent connection there. And so our, our capacity to live in a world where people who claim God doesn't exist and then spend their life proving that he doesn't exist is really important for us to be able to say, I believe that there is a God who exists, and yet look what he says. David says, do I not hate those who hate you? Now, I'm not going to sit up here and say you should, should hate people, you should love people, and all those things. But David is speaking from the heart that he's saying, Lord, there are people who hate you, and when they hate you and are, 
are cruel to you. I mean, let me ask you a question. You who love Jesus, if you were to look at the people mocking him, nailing him to the cross, what would you feel in your heart? Would you feel compassion for them? Like, I don't. I don't. Who did feel compassion for them? The Lord Jesus, who looked down on those who were murdering him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, we're called to this incredible life of forgiveness and grace. So this psalm is known, like I said, for a whole lot of things. But in the context of this for David, of saying, Lord, there are those who hate you, and I count them my enemies, he says this in verse 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting, in the everlasting way. Before we dig into this any further, let's pray and let those words sink into our heart. Lord, we come to you this morning as a God who is true, a God who is real, who created us, made us in your image. It's given us life and hope and purpose and joy. And we're entering a new year, Lord, that you have ordained for us to walk in, to walk with you. And you have called us, O oh Lord, to something. You've called us to intimacy with you. You have made it available to us. So I pray that as we, we look in your word today, that you would teach us to open our heart to you, teach us to respond to your invitation to intimacy by allowing you in to get to work on us, Lord. That we desperately need to grow. We need to mature. We need sanctification. We need you to transform us, Lord. And so we just invite that process of transformation. As we talk about today, Lord, it is sometimes painful. Would you help us to rest in you and to trust in you, to not fear the pain of being changed? Open our hearts, Lord Jesus, to the truth of your word to the reality that we can know you and be known by you and that we can experience intimacy with our creator. So would you help us understand your word today? In Christ's name we pray, amen. So when he says, search me, oh God. So the word for search there is a root word for, for digging, like digging in the ground, like digging for treasure. And the only reason you dig for a treasure is because there's something valuable. There's no reason just to dig holes in the ground. I mean, unless you're a kid. Kids just dig holes or dogs or whatever. But people who have stuff to do, they dig holes to look for treasure because they think that what's down there is treasure, right? That it has value. So when he says, search me, dig into me, O Lord, and know my heart, behind that phrase is something that's really good. For God to search us and know us, for God to want to dig into our heart, for God to want to excavate us, it's because what is there is valuable to him. You realize that? What is in your heart to know your heart and to know, even as you're going to talk about in a second, your anxious thoughts, that has value to the Lord. He doesn't look at your heart and be like, oh my gosh, again. No, he values you infinitely because everything he does is infinite. And so his value of your heart is infinite. You are a treasure to God. Do you know that? You are a treasure to him. The God who needs nothing, who owns all, looks at you and says, that child is my treasure. That's good. That's a good basis to make sure we're starting this whole thing out with an understanding of your identity in Christ, that he treasures you. But David says to search me, to dig in to me, and then he says, to know my heart. Now, obviously, God knows all things. He is omniscient. He's not learning new information of David. David's not saying, I've got something hidden from you, Lord, and I'm going to reveal it to you. 
He's not asking God to know what he doesn't know because he knows all things. But he's asking him to know his heart. And the heart there really gets translated a lot of different ways, but it is the seat in, the, in our person of our appetites, our emotions, and our courage. So our appetites are the things that we hunger for, right? Our, uh, our emotions, the things that we feel, and our courage, the things that we're willing to fight for. So David is saying, Lord, I want you to dig out of me and to know what I hunger for, what I feel, and what I fight for. And as we look, we're going to look here in just a minute, the reality that we need our appetites to be pleasing to the Lord, the things that we feel, the things that we fight for, to be the things that the Lord wants us to fight for. A lot of times believers end up fighting all kinds of battles that the Lord isn't in. Like they're fighting way over here and the Lord's working over here going, what are you doing? Why are you there? My heart is here. Come align with my heart and fight the things that I fight. So dig into me, O God, and know my heart. Then he says to test me and know my anxious thoughts. So that word for, for test or try um, is a word that was used for a process called cupellation, which is where they would take a, a sample of a precious metal. So let's take gold, right? They still do this day. So this is written in the, like, I don't know what, Bronze Age, Iron Age, wherever this, he stands. But the concept that metals existed and that they were, they were pure metals and not pure metals and gold and silver, they knew all these things back then. And so they would have, someone brings a giant talent of gold to a king and they say, here's your gold for a tribute. And they would test it to make sure that it was actually gold. Because you could take gold and mix it with other things. And, 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 and so they had to make sure it was pure. So they would cut a little sample off of it and they would weigh it. And then they would take that sample of gold that they weighed and they would melt it with lead. And that lead would, would blend with this gold and it would pull out any of the impurities in the gold, including if they had melted silver in there or if they would melted lead in there. And it would form this little button of, of, of lead and gold melted together. Then they would put it in this little cup. Uh, made out of uh, ceramic, and they would heat it to incredible temperatures. And the lead would oxidize and get pulled into this little cup so that the only thing chemically that was left would be gold. And then they would take that little sample, and if that weighed what the original sample weighed, boom, pure gold. David is saying, I want you to test me like that. I want you to see what I'm made of, Lord. What a crazy thing to ask the Lord, right? To test me, to try me, to put me into the crucible of your heat and your fire. And I want you to get in there and try me. And what, what's your, what are you going to find? Test me or try me and, and know what? My anxious thoughts. Your version may say my cares or your worries or your concerns. The idea of it is it's things that weigh us down, the thoughts that are in us that cause us anxiety, that cause us to worry, that cause us concern. So when I think about fire in the Bible, I think about incredible heat, it made me think about Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So remember the story, it's in Daniel 3, and they're, they're there, and Nebuchadnezzar sets up this giant um, statue of himself for them to worship. And he says, all right, I want you to kneel down, the horns are going to blow, and everybody in the, is going to kneel down and worship this thing. And these three young men really said, no, we're not going to do it. So I said, okay, anybody that doesn't bow down and worship, they're going to get thrown into this fiery furnace. And they, so they wouldn't bow down. They, they get brought before Nebuchadnezzar and they say, hey, you know what? God can save us from this. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. So do what you want to do. Incredible courage. 
And so, of course, they get thrown in. Their hands are bound. They get thrown into this fire so hot that the people that threw them in were consumed by the heat. And they see four people walking around in there. So the Lord goes into the fire with them. And it says they're walking around unbound. So that the things that were binding them got burned up in the fire of God's presence. So let me ask you, what are the worries, the anxieties that bind you up? That keep you from worshiping the Lord in the midst of the fire? Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were in the fire. They weren't outside like drinking lemonade. They were literally in a furnace designed to kill them. And there they are in the fire with the Lord. And when they come out, their clothes didn't even smell of smoke. It's incredible. They were willing to die to worship the Lord alone. And so when they were thrown into that mess, the Lord not only protected them, but met them there and burned away the things that humans had used to bind their hands. So when you ask the Lord, Lord, test me, put me in the fire. I want to come before you and I want you to burn out all the stuff that isn't pure that isn't what you want. And I want you to free the things that bind my hands so that I can worship you rightly. So what does it look like? Like what are the things, if you think about the things that cause you anxiety, right? Um, I even saw a billboard that said Jesus suffered anxiety. And, uh, and I have to talk with whoever and put that down there, see what they mean. Jesus obviously was stressed and Jesus had concern. Uh, like, Jesus did not think, man, I wish I could take a pill to make this all go away, I don't think. And so he trusted the Lord. He trusted his Father fully at all times. But Jesus experienced the, the full breadth of human experience. He experienced the burden of looking at his imminent torture and death and knowing that was coming. Seeing the separation that he would have from the Father and suffering through that. Jesus truly suffered. And humans have an enormous amount of anxiety. The mental health status in our country today is, is, it is, you guys have no idea at a church our size how many references we make to biblical counselors here, okay? You are not alone if you are struggling. And the people we know in this town who love the Lord and love, love his word and who are trained to counsel and give therapy to people, they are way booked out. Why do you think that is? Because we live in a time, like in all times, where the environment that we're in causes us to be anxious. It causes us to have thoughts that worry us. So when you have a thought that is worrying you, it binds you from serving, and it binds you from two things, from trusting in the Lord and from enjoying Him. Do you know that you're supposed to, remember we talked about last week, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? You cannot be bound up in your anxiety and enjoy, your, enjoy the Lord in the same moment. You can't because all of your energies are exerted over here in managing your worry. Worry takes an enormous amount of energy, emotional energy, physical energy, mental, spiritual, financial energy to manage our worries. And we're not able to fully enjoy the Lord if we're holding on to these worries. But it also demonstrates when I'm worried, when I'm anxious, I mean, if, if you've got children, you have experienced anxiety and worry. If you have a job or you've ever done a budget, if you've ever owned a home, if you've ever gone to college, if you've lived longer than, I don't know, like to past, I don't know, 30 seconds, you've probably experienced some level of anxiety. Because, honestly, this world makes me super nervous. 
Who does? You can die a lot of different ways. If you've got kids, just trying to keep them alive is really hard. They're like from age zero to five. They're literally just trying to kill themselves on purpose by running into the street, climbing up on things, stabbing themselves, putting things in electrical outlets, trying to find the poison that you lock up. It's ridiculous. They're like, hey, can I drink this? It's crazy. And then you have teenagers, and then you have all these things. Oh my gosh, the anxiety is overwhelming. When I'm anxious, when I have anxious thoughts, it reveals to me that I'm not trusting the Lord. Why? Because if I trusted him, I wouldn't worry. Why? Because my anxiety reveals that I don't really believe that he's able to help me. If I really believe that God is sovereign over the lives of my children that he has saved them, redeemed them, and he has put the seal on their heart of the Holy Spirit, that he will finish the work that he began. And why do I worry about their spiritual lives? Is God God or is he not? If we we do our budget in January and we think the things that, okay, these are things you want to plan out. These are things you want to do this year financially. This is what's coming in. This is what's going out. This is the difference. (sighs) Why am I worried? Do I not believe that God can provide for what he wants us to do? Or don't I? I can't stand here and say, Lord, I'm so worried about these things. And at the same time say, Lord, I open-handedly worship you because I trust in you fully. You cannot do those things. Just like you cannot walk east and west at the same time. And do not get into some philosophical battle for me about, well, you can turn north and south. Blah. The reality is that I can't trust the Lord fully and engage in my worry. I can't. So when it says, Know my anxious thoughts. He's saying that because he has anxious thoughts, and so do I. So what is the value then of God knowing them? So this is where intimacy comes into the the discussion. So let's say I know something about myself. I know lots of things about me that you don't know. Jenny knows me better than any other human on the planet has ever known me. So let's say I know something about me, but you don't know it. But then I know something, and then you find out something about me. Well, whatever. I like Texas Tech football or whatever, something that doesn't really matter. So now I know that you know, and you know something about me. And then, but then when you tell me that you know this thing about me, then I know that you know what I know. And when that happens, I don't have to hide anything from you. I can like wear a shirt with a tech logo on it. And you're like, hey, look, he's a tech fan. I already knew that. No big deal. It's not like a surprise. So let's say you know that I suffer with anxiety or I suffer with, there's a long list of things that you and I all suffer with, right? The more that we know about each other, the more we can just engage in pure relationship. Because when I know that you know what I know and vice versa, I don't have to hide anything from you. I don't have to put up a facade. I don't have to um, make myself look better because you know what I'm really like. And so I can make myself look better. And you're like, what do you, you have a friend like that where they put up a facade and you're like, oh, come on, this, this is ridiculous. Just be you already. And it's incredibly freeing. Why? That's intimacy. Intimacy is I don't have anything to hide. You know, we know each other and it's beautiful. When we, uh, we walked into the Parsons, was that last night, two nights ago, New Year's Eve? And they were having a little party over there, and we came over. We were late, of course, because things. And I get in there, and we're just sort of stressed because we were getting late. And I walk in, and I see um, people from our church. 
And I just walked in and I thought, oh man, these are just my people. Like they, they know me, they know my faults. If you've been in our life group for a long time, you know it's unvarnished Scott family. We don't, we don't, we try not to hide a whole lot. We're a mess. I'm a mess and they know I'm a mess and they love me anyway. So they just hug me and nobody's asking me. We're just together. We have the intimacy of relationship, a relationship that is unfettered by facades. So when David says, search me and know my heart and test me and know my anxious thoughts, it reveals the implied unbelief that comes from anxiety. It reveals it because David knows that he has those anxious thoughts, but he needs to know that God knows them. And when he does that, he is then free to manage those thoughts before the Lord. He doesn't have to spend any time covering them up. It's like if you're journaling and lying to the Lord in your journal. I mean, really? Like, what is the point of that? It's not only is it a waste of time, it's like uh, an abuse of it. It's like taking the time that you do have and like intentionally ruining it. So don't do that. Just be honest with the Lord. Ask him to know you. It says after that, see if there be any offensive way in me. So your version may say offensive or hurtful or grievous. It may even say idolatrous. The reason that it may say idolatrous is because that, that root word can be used for idol. But it's this, it is, when it says offensive way or hurtful or grievous way, anytime we're engaging in idolatry, worshiping something that isn't the Lord, we, we leave behind us a wake of hurt. There's no other way around it. When we sin, we leave a wake of disaster and destruction behind us. It's just it's what happens. The wages of sin are death. So when we live a life, walk a life of sinning, the wake behind us is full of dead things. Death of relationships, hopes, dreams, you just name it. The word for way there means like a, a journey, a road, a, a path, and it can mean also generally, figuratively, like a lifestyle. So when he's asking him this, he says, see if my lifestyle is hurtful. If you were coming before the Lord and said, Lord, would you see if the way that I'm living my life is hurtful? Does it offend you? Does it offend other people? Like I know that there's sort of this brash um, side of, of Christianity where it's like, well, the gospel is offensive. It's like, yes, it is, but you don't have to be. Jesus was not like offensive. He didn't like walk up and slap people. He didn't walk up and shove little kids down or yell at old ladies. He was kind. Sinners loved being around Jesus. They lo Do they love being around you? Maybe you're not around any sinners. I don't know. I, I'm around one every day, right up here. So, But the idea that the gospel is offensive, we're not supposed to be. We're actually supposed to be kind and winsome and all these things that make knowing another person just much easier. When it says hurtful, offensive, or grievous, it's to ask yourself this question and to ask the Lord this question. Lord, does my lifestyle grieve your heart? Does the way that I live my life grieve you? That's a hard question to ask the Lord. It's a really hard question to ask the Lord if you're willing to ask it and then listen. And say, Lord, I want to read your word today and I want you to show me if any way that I'm living grieves your heart. I want you to reveal it to me and I want you to root it out of me. There's a, a book called The Valley of Vision. If you've never heard of it, it's a, uh, someone gave it to me when we were going to Guatemala. And uh, it is a collection of Puritan 
prayers and devotions. So it's deep, right? I mean, just Puritans could pray. They, uh, they were deep. And uh, there's actually a title of, of this per- particular prayer. It's called The Deeps, right? Um, it starts off, Lord Jesus, give me a deeper repentance, a deeper horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me chastely to flee it and jealously to resolve that my heart will be thine alone. So it's in old language, right? You've got to kind of translate it. But that's the heart of these, these. And as you read it, you just think, man, whether you disagree or agree with the Puritans, man, they longed to have the same heart that God has. And they say this, talking about being known. He says, plow deep in me, great Lord, that my being may be a tilled field and the roots of grace spreading far and wide until you alone are seen in me. Your beauty golden like a summer harvest. Your fruitfulness as autumn plenty. And then it says, quarry me deep, dear Lord. So quarry, right? You have this stone that you want to pull out and you, you dig deep. Quarry me deep, dear Lord. And then fill me to overflowing with living water. Quarry me deep, dear Lord, and then fill me to overflowing with living water. So when he says, see if there is any offensive way in me, we need him to pull out that within us which is offensive to the Lord, that which is idolatrous, that which is hurtful to other people. But then he doesn't just leave an open wound. What does the Lord do? He fills it with living water. And out of the emptiness of him emptying out the junk in my life, he fills it with his spirit and then overflows the living water of himself to other people. It's remarkable. See if there be any offensive way in me. Now, anybody who has asked the Lord, um, Lord, dig deep in me, quarry me deeply, know my anxiety, test me, put me into the fire and burn out all the things that are in me that aren't pleasing to you. Lord, find out all of my anxiety, all of my anxious worries. Uh, Root out all of the hurtful way in me. Anybody who's actually ever done that can understand why this verse ends and lead me in the everlasting way. You come in a place where you're like, Lord, I cannot stay in this place where you have gutted me. I need you to lead me somewhere else. I cannot stay in this place where I'm at. Have you ever felt like that? The Lord brings you out of here, brings you to this place where he's just put you through the ringer spiritually, and you are desperate for someone to lead you. Well, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd on purpose. He's not making a mistake. He knows that we need a leader. We need someone to guide us, to shepherd us out from the offensive way that is in us. So what does that way look like? Well, Jesus says a lot of hard things, and in Matthew 7, he says some more. And in verse 7, excuse me, chapter 7, uh, verse 12, he's coming up to the end of the Sermon on the Mount here. And he says in 7, 12, mm, let's look at, oh, now I've got to get context for a bit, right? So he's talking about seeking him and knocking, and let's just start at 7. So, He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If you ask the Lord 
to search you, to test you, will he do it? Yes. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. It's a golden rule. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This whole book is summed up in that. Love one another. And then he says in verse 13, Enter the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The way of Jesus is narrow. Do you realize that? If you just step back for a minute and look at the way of the world, right? Just look at the people the Lord glorifies. The, I don't want to throw people under the bus. I don't have any against the Kardashians or whatever, right? But just look at, look at the world, the people that the world highly values, that we bow down to, that we put on our magazines, that we put on our billboards, that we give our money to, that we buy stuff from. They're on the wide path to destruction. There's only one way to life, and that's through Jesus. And that way is narrow. It's not narrow because it's restrictive. It's narrow because Jesus is trying to, he is a, it's a straight path. It isn't all broken up and messed up and full of, it's narrow because it has boundaries and limits. Because truly beautiful things have limits. You realize that, right? All art has a boundary. Every single, the Mona Lisa is in a frame. Every single sculpture has a limitations. It has a size. The guy's not still carving. Every single uh, paint stroke begins and ends. So the reality is that a good, beautiful life is a life that is limited in many, many ways. And we have been fed the lie that a truly blessed life is a limitless life. But that isn't true. A truly good life is one that was within the curbs of God's will. That's where blessing and joy and life is found. Okay, so what do we do with all this? Well, here's my uh, challenge and encouragement to you is uh, this year, memorize these two verses. They're really easy to memorize. And when you roll out of bed in the morning, say these things to God. Say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And as we pray right now to close, I want to, uh, I'm going to give us just a moment or two, and I'm going to lead us through a time for you to do that right now. And if you've never done that, I just enjoy, uh, I encourage you to join me as we pray this together and ask the Lord to do this in our heart as a church. And then I encourage you to make this a, a daily liturgy in your life, that you maybe come as couples, that you come as, as individuals, that if you're a kid and you can memorize this thing, memorize it, roll out of bed. I tell you what, if you're 10 years old and you make the habit of, Rolling out of bed every morning and saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Your life will be amazing. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that you are a God that calls us to intimacy with yourself. And that you not only call us to it, but you invite us, Lord Jesus, to respond to that call by opening our heart to you. By asking for you to search us. By asking for you to know the deep worries and concerns of our heart. Lord, I pray for us right now, and I just open this, this time, Father, for us to take a moment and to begin this year by asking you to do this very thing, by pressing into the intimacy 
that you have provided for us. You have given us an open invitation to be intimate with you. And I want, Lord Jesus, for us as a church to have an open invitation for you just to dig into us, Lord. And so, Father, as, as we pray this, Lord, I just pray that you would work on our hearts. Draw us to you and, and align us with your will. As we come to you, Lord, and we ask you just to search me, O God, and to know my heart. As you're sitting there in your space, just ask the Lord to search you, to dig deep into you, to quarry out that which isn't pleasing to him, which is destructive. And that you would understand and sense the great joy of having your heart known by the Lord. Ask him to test you and to know your anxious thoughts. That you would submit to the crucible of his purifying fire. He is an unquenchable fire. And so we come to that knowing that we have access to it through the Lord Jesus, not in fear, but knowing that it is a, a place where we can come to to receive the healing and the help that we need. So put us through the fire, O oh Lord. Reveal our anxious thoughts to us that we can surrender them to you and walk in true dependence upon you. Lord, would you... See if there is any offensive or hurtful way in us. Any way that the wake of our life is leaving destruction, hurt, offense, hurt people in the path of it, Lord. And that we would be people who would walk with you, Lord. Where the wake of our life would leave joy and goodness and grace and healing and restored relationships. And finally, Lord, we ask that you would lead us in the everlasting way. As an act of submission, Lord, we just, in our heart, get on our knees before you and ask you to lead us, that we surrender to your lordship as our shepherd, trusting that you are good and that you will lead us in the good way. And I pray for us, Lord Jesus, that this will be the habit of our body, to come to you, to bow before you, and to ask for you to do these things for us. Quarry us deeply, O Lord, and fill us fully to overflowing with the river of living water. In Christ's name we pray. Let's all stand as we sing this final song. Um, <clears throat> we're aware that opening up our hearts in this way, being vulnerable, it's scary. Um, but this is what God will do if we will allow him to. Philip, will you put up that first slide? This is what he'll do. He'll take our mourning and he'll turn it to dancing sadness to, to celebration. He'll give us beauty for our ashes. He will turn our shame into glory. And the fact is, he's the only one who can. Take us to that next one, Philip. Thank you. You turn graves, something that's dead, into gardens, something that is fully alive. Again, bones, dead. He turns them into armies. From the book of Ezekiel, is that right, Brandon? You turn seas into highways from the book of Exodus where he parted the seas. He let them escape. He gave them a way to go. He was the only one who can. Let's sing these words. Let's trust in this Lord to search our hearts and do these things.
turn mourning to dancing You give beauty for ashes You turn shame into glory Shame into glory, you're the only 
So I want you guys to repeat after me. You ready? I'm treasured by God. I can be known by God. And I can walk in His ways. Now I want you to spend this year living that out. You're His treasure. You can be known by Him and you can walk in His ways. And I just cannot wait to see what the Lord does through a group of people who are willing to do that. He's done it before. They were called the disciples. Changed the world. And he's doing it now in our church and in this world. So let's join him in the work that he's doing and go in peace.